Please open your Bibles to Matthew 26, verse 26. Uh, our passage for today is Matthew 26, 26 to 29. Let's begin by reading the passage together. Uh, it's, the, it's the Last Supper, of course. Jesus is issuing his parting words to his disciples as he sovereignly directs the events leading to his execution and as, as he celebrates a last Passover with them. Matthew writes this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Despite her relatively short reign, Mary Tudor is known today as one of England's most famous, or perhaps it's better to say, infamous monarchs. Uh, You probably wouldn't recognize her by her official title, which was Mary I, Queen of England and Ireland. You probably know her instead by the haunting nickname, Bloody Mary. The reason she's called Bloody Mary is because some 288 Protestants died as martyrs during her reign from 1553 to 1558. I'd like to begin our time together this morning by reading an account of the first of these martyrs, who was a man by the name of John Rogers. In case you're not familiar with John Rogers, he played an instrumental role in the creation of one of the first English translations of the Bible, the Matthew Bible. In In the Matthew Bible, John Rogers took the New Testament and Old Testament work of William Tyndale and combined it with the Old Testament work of Miles Coverdale to create a complete English translation of the Bible. Rogers published this translation under the pseudonym Thomas Matthew in 1537, and it would subsequently become one of the references translators used for the 1611 King James Version. In January 1554, he was arrested under the orders of Edmund Bonner, Bishop of London, and he was executed just over a year later on the 4th of February 1555. John Fox gives the following account of his death in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Now when the time came that he, being delivered to the sheriffs, should be brought out of Newgate to Smithfield, the place of his execution, first came to him Master Woodruff, one of the aforesaid sheriffs, and calling Master Rogers unto him, asked him if he would revoke his abominable doctrine and his evil opinion of the sacrament of the altar. Master Rogers answered and said, That which I have preached I will seal with my blood. Then, quoth Master Woodruff, thou art a heretic. That shall be known, quoth Rogers, at the day of judgment. Well, quoth Master Woodruff, I will never pray for thee, but I will pray for you, quoth Master Rogers. And so was brought that same day, which was Monday, the 4th of February, by the sheriffs towards Smithfield, saying, Psalm 51, by the way, all the people wonderfully rejoicing at his constancy, with great praises and thanks to God for the same. And there, in the presence of Master Rochester, comptroller of the Queen's household, Sir Richard Southwell, both the sheriffs, and a wonderful number of people, the fire was put to him. And when it had taken hold both of his legs and shoulders, he, as one feeling no smart, washed his hands in the flame, as though it had been in cold water. And after lifting up his hands unto heaven, not removing the same until such a time as the devouring fire had consumed them, most mildly this happy martyr yielded up his spirit into the hands of his heavenly Father." A little before his burning at the stake, his pardon was brought, if he would have recanted, but he utterly refused. He was the first proto-martyr of all the blessed company that suffered in Queen Mary's time, that gave the first adventure upon the fire. 
His wife and children, being eleven in number and ten able to go, and one sucking on her breast, met him by the way as he went towards Smithfield. This sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood could nothing move him, but that he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and quarrel of Christ's gospel. I can still remember uh, first reading about the death of John Rogers as a new Christian more than a decade ago. What strikes me now, as it did then, is what Fox says towards the end of this account. Listen to this excerpt one more time. Fox says, A little before his burning at the stake, his pardon was brought, if he would have recanted. But he utterly refused. He was the first proto-martyr of all the blessed company that suffered in Queen Mary's time that gave the first adventure upon, uh, first adventure upon the, fl- the fire. His wife and children, being eleven in number and ten able to go, and one sucking on her breast, met him by the way as he went towards Smithfield. This sorrowful sight of his own flesh and blood could nothing move him, but that he constantly and cheerfully took his death with wonderful patience in the defense and quarrel of Christ's gospel. I read that portion of the account, and I'm left speechless. Rogers was the father of ten children. His youngest was born while he was in prison. And actually, the very first time he ever laid eyes on him well, was while he was on his way to burn at the stake. I can only imagine the, emotion, the emotions that would have surged through Rogers in that moment as he first laid eyes on his little baby. But even then, though he had been given an opportunity to recant, he would not. Nor did his family want him to recant. The French ambassador to England at the time was a witness to Rogers' execution, and he not only noted that the crowds loudly cheered Rogers on as he journeyed to the stake, but, quote, even his children assisted at it, comforting him in such a manner that it seemed as if he had been led toward a wedding. I don't know about you, but when I read that, it makes me wonder. What could have been so important to Rogers that he would have been so willing to surrender so much and in such a horrific manner? What would possess a man to continue to walk to the stake while staring his children in the face, knowing that two simple words, I recant, could end it all? What could be so important to him that he would suffer all of that and instead trade it in for the flames of martyrdom? J.C. Ryle answers this question for us, and in his book, Light from Old Times, he explains, it was the Lord's Supper. You see, Mary I was a Catholic. And she persecuted the Protestant pastors in England for their religious faith. As she did that, one of the principal charges that were hung against them was the fact that they denied the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. We talked about this doctrine last week. The doctrine of transubstantiation teaches that when the Catholic priest blesses the communion, the elements are mysteriously transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. Like, you're actually eating His real flesh even though it looks like bread. The Protestant reformers denied this doctrine, and so they were put to death. Ryle explains. He says, Great indeed would be our mistake if we suppose the reformers suffered for the vague charge of refusing submission to the Pope or desiring to maintain the independence of the Church of England. Nothing of the kind. The principal reason why they were burned was because they refused one of the peculiar doctrines of the Romish Church. On that doctrine, in every other, in, I'm sorry, in, in over every case, hinged their life or death. If they admitted it, they might live. If they refused it, they must die. He says the doctrine in question 
was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper? Did they or did they not believe that the body of Christ were really, that is, corporally, literally, locally, and materially present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced? Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was present on the so-called altar so soon as the mystical words passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they were burned. Ryle notes that this is how Rogers answered that question as well. Quoting John Rogers himself, he says, I was asked whether I believed in the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ that was born of the Virgin Mary, hanged on the cross, really and substantially. I answered, I think it to be false. I cannot understand really and substantially to signify otherwise that corporally. But corporally, Christ is only in heaven. And so Christ cannot be corporally in your sacrament. Ryle comments, therefore he was condemned and burned. Again, I remember reading all of that for the first time as a new Christian and and being absolutely floored by that. These men died simply because they believed over what they believed the Lord's table signified. Isn't that a little bit excessive, I wondered? Isn't that splitting hairs? Is that really worth dying for? I remember asking one of my pastors these questions and then he explained it to me. He said, if Jesus is corporally, that is bodily, present in the Lord's table, then it means that the priest is continually re-sacrificing the body of Christ for our sins. The altar in the Catholic Church becomes a real altar upon which Jesus dies continually for the sins of the people. This goes against the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 9 and 10, which says that Jesus offered a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. And it impugns the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. It indicates that His death on the cross was not sufficient to atone for our sins because the sacrifice must be continually made over and over again. In short, these men died because they understood that wrapped up in the doctrine of the Lord's table was the very essence of the gospel itself. So if they as leaders in the church compromised on that point, They would actually be miscommunicating the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice to the church. And they would be leading people to hell. And so yes, John Rogers went to the stake as if he was walking to his wedding. Yes, he would trade in his family for the flames. And yes, his children would cheer him on in encouragement. Because they understood that eternity hung in the balance. If Rogers and the Reformers recanted, the gospel would be silenced and souls would be damned to hell. I doubt very many Christians take the Lord's table that seriously today. I know I certainly didn't when I first read about the martyrdom of the English reformers. The fact of the matter is that many churches simply don't emphasize the Lord's table very much anymore. It's not uncommon, for instance, for a church to observe the Lord's table only once a quarter, if even then, and then in an evening service. And when it is observed, it's not uncommon for the table to be distributed without much, if any, explanation. This means that many believers are left to guess as to the meaning and significance of this meal. And so I doubt many Christians would join John Rogers in dying over the Lord's table because they simply don't understand what's at stake. It's never been sufficiently explained to them, and so they don't know either what it means or the role that it plays in the life of the church. It's with this in mind that we're taking a couple of weeks to explore the meaning and the application of this meal together. Technically speaking, our passage for today is Matthew 26, 26 
In this passage, Matthew describes for us the historical moment when Jesus first instituted this ordinance for the church. Now, normally I would try to explore Matthew's specific application of this meal within the themes that he develops in this gospel. However, however, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember that I said I want to use our time in this passage instead as an opportunity to take a step back. And rather than just look at Matthew's use of this meal, I want us to instead see what the New Testament as a whole says about it. It's been close to five years now since we've provided any sort of in-depth explanation of the Lord's table in a corporate setting, considering the importance that Jesus apparently attached to this meal, that's really far too long. So rather than simply preach Matthew 26, 26 to 29, I instead want to teach on the implication and application of the meal as a whole. I began last week by providing and explaining a basic definition of the Lord's table. In that message, I defined the Lord's table like this. I said the Lord's table, and this is in your bulletin again, in case you missed it. I said the Lord's table is an ordinance that commemorates the death of Christ and symbolizes a participation in and anticipation of the new covenant through faith in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and b fellowship with Jesus Christ and all those who likewise believe in Him and await His second coming. Let me state that definition one more time. I said the Lord's table is an ordinance that commemorates the death of Christ, and symbolizes a participation in and anticipation of the new covenant through faith in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and b fellowship with Jesus Christ and all those who likewise believe in Him and await His second coming. Last week I walked step by step through that definition to explain what it's saying, so I'm not going to do that here again this morning, but basically what this definition is saying is that just before Jesus ratified the new covenant with His death on the cross, He gave the, His disciples this meal as a reminder that everyone who participates in this meal might remember that they are not only participants in this covenant by virtue of their union with Christ, but they are also joined in union with everyone else who likewise takes this meal and participates in that hope. If you remember, I said that the Lord's table was originally delivered in the context of a Passover celebration. And that when Jesus sat down to observe this meal with His disciples, Luke says He told them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When Jesus said that, He not only indicated that there will be future Passover celebrations in the kingdom of heaven, But he also indicated that there was some sense in which the original Passover was neither fulfilled presently at that point in history, nor would it be fulfilled until the coming of the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus returns, the kingdom will be established. At that time, the anticipation of Passover will be completed. And then he will sit down and eat this meal with his disciples once again. Only then he will eat it, not in anticipation of the things Passover predicted, He will eat it in celebration, rather, of its fulfillment. We saw that when Jesus said this, He was referring to the fact that when God first delivered the Passover to Israel, He did so at a time when He was delivering Israel from slavery in Egypt, specifically so that they might serve and worship Him. In fact, if you recall, I said that the Passover meal, at the Passover meal, uh, the people of Israel would drink from four cups, and each cup commemorated a specific promise that God made to Israel in Exodus 6, verses 6 to 7. The fourth cup commemorated the promise of Exodus 6, 7. 
in which God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This was the whole purpose of the Exodus. For the people of Israel to be freed from Egypt, so that they might instead be dedicated in service to God. And this purpose was expressed, of course, in the giving of the Mosaic Law at Mount Sinai. In that act, God constituted a new law that the people of Israel were to live under. And we saw that as Israel kept this law, all the promises that God made to Abraham, in which he said that Israel would become this great nation over the earth, through whom all the nations would be blessed, all those promises would be thus fulfilled. The problem, though, was that Israel didn't keep that law. They broke that covenant. In fact, they broke it so dramatically that God would eventually even depart from the temple and cast the nation out of Canaan entirely by the hand of an assortment of Gentile rulers. In Jeremiah 31, God promises to make a new covenant with Israel. One that he says is not going to be like the one that he made with them at Sinai. The difference, he explains, is that under this covenant, the law won't be written on tablets of stone. Instead, it's going to be written on their very hearts. Further, whereas before much of Israel did not believe, under this covenant, all of Israel would know God from the least of them to the greatest. In other words, there would be a national salvation of Israel. Ignorance and sin would also be eliminated under this covenant because they would all be taught directly by God and a full and final forgiveness would be established. When Jesus first delivered the Lord's table, He did so by saying that not only did the bread represent the fact that he was dying in place of the disciples, of his disciples. But that the wine also represented the new covenant in his blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Jesus was about to ratify the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 through his death on the cross. And whereas Moses took the blood of the people's sacrifice in the the old covenant, threw half of it on the altar and half of 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 it on the people to indicate both God's and the people's commitment to that covenant. From now on, Jesus' disciples would eat the bread and drink the cup as a demonstration of the fact that they were not only participants in His sacrifice, but that they were members of this new covenant, which He had sealed in His blood as well. What the Lord's table does, therefore, is anticipate the future fulfillment of the new covenant promises. It anticipates the completion of what God had first begun at Passover. Everyone who drinks of it, drinks of it in anticipation of the coming kingdom of heaven. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. In the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.26. And since we all join in this hope via the same sacrifice, and since the same Christ is currently in all of us by virtue of the fact that we are all indwelled, by the same Holy Spirit who comes to us as an anticipation of this future promise, this table not only points to a future hope based on the sacrifice that Jesus has already accomplished for us in the past, but it also points to the union that we presently enjoy with one another as well. The table is a symbol of the fellowship that we enjoy both with Christ by virtue of mutual attachment and by virtue of mutual attachment to Christ with one another. It anticipates a celebration that we're all going to participate in together at the return of Christ as we share in His inheritance as brothers and sisters. In other words, there's nothing about this meal that is in any way salvific. 
The English reformers were right in rejecting the real corporeal presence of Christ in the elements. After all, this is not a real sacrifice of Christ. It is an ordinance given as a remembrance of His death by symbolizing uh, what His death accomplished at the cross. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the one who participates in this meal rightly participates in it solely as an expression of their faith. However, this is not to say that the meal is unimportant simply because it is not salvific. Yes, it is a symbol. Grace is in no way mediated through the bare elements themselves. Any benefit that is affected through the table occurs because it is received in faith. Faith is the active component that brings the benefit, not the table in and of itself. All the same, all the same. This is a powerful symbol. Jesus provided this meal to the church because when it is received in faith, it ministers to us. Consider, for instance, how the table aids us in our worship of God. It reminds us of the love of God. Jesus says that the bread which we eat is His body, which is given for us. This means that every time we take the table, we ought to be reminded of the fact that God the Son left the glories and privileges of heaven in order to take on the form of a bondservant and suffer and die for our sins. It's a reminder of divine love. It's a reminder that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The table ministers to us in that sense. It reminds us as well of the present salvation we now enjoy. We struggle with sin constantly. And with this struggle, often comes doubts. It's easy to wonder, is God really going to forgive someone as sinful as me? The Lord's table is given as a reminder to the fact that the entire debt of your sin has already been paid in full. It's no longer a matter of whether there is a sufficient sacrifice to pay the full penalty for your sins, past, present, and future, because Jesus says that the cup is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is so, so important. Our our natural tendency as believers, even as believers at times, is to veer towards self-righteousness. One of the functions of the Lord's table is to constantly push the believer's hope back to the cross as the basis of their forgiveness and not their own merit. So it ministers to us in this way. The Lord's table also reminds us of our fellowship and union with Christ. In the words of Louis Burkhoff, the Lord's table represents not only the death of Christ as the object of faith and the act of faith which unites the believer to Christ, but also the effect of this act as giving life, strength, and joy to the soul. Again, there are, there are present realities that we enjoy by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ. And chief among these is the fact that Jesus is alive and with us. As he tells his disciples after his resurrection at the very end of Matthew's gospel, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How important is that promise when we're discouraged by our sin or when we're laid low through some tragedy in our life? To know, how important is this promise? To know that we are not alone. That Jesus abides with us and gives us the grace to continue in our faith and and repentance from dead idols. I don't know about you, but there are many moments when I'm reminded of the fact that I am completely helpless to to overcome my sin and doubt on my own. 
What a comfort it is to be reminded in those moments that the good news is that I'm not left to overcome those weaknesses on my own. Because Christ in me is the one who overcomes them. Well, the Lord's table is designed to remind you of that union and give you hope. When you eat the bread and drink the cup, it ought to remind you that the the new covenant promises this intimate union with God and that it's already been sealed by the blood of Christ and you're a participant in it by faith. And of course, it also reminds us of our future hope. Again, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whenever we take this meal, the Lord's table not only commemorates what Jesus has done at the cross, it also points to what He will do at His return. And the victory is already guaranteed. The fact that we're participants in the ground of that victory means that we too share in the spoils. This means that as much as we may struggle with with depression or with discouragement from time to time as Christians, we always have a reason to be optimistic. As much as we may struggle with joy, we still have a reason to be joyful, always. And the Lord's table pushes that hope ever before us. Every time we take this meal, it serves, as a, it serves as a beam of sunlight that dispels the gloom of our lives by reminding us, no matter how hard, or, or for that matter, how good life is right now, it gets better. This life is temporary, and there is now stored up for us in heaven an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, because it all rests on the merit of Christ and not my own. The Lord's table ministers to us in this way as well. It gives us hope. And that's just its effect on our worship. I haven't even gotten in to the role that it plays in the corporate ministry of the church. That's just the, the way it contributes to our worship. So can you see then why Jesus would give this ordinance to the church? It's hugely beneficial to us. And this means that we need to take great care in seeing that it's practiced in the right way. That's what I want to look at with the time we have remaining this morning. The importance of this table in the life of the church means that we need to do it right. But what does that mean? What is the right way to administer this symbol to the church? I want to try to answer that question by briefly looking at the who, the how, and the when of the Lord's table. Once again, that's the who, the how, and the when of the Lord's table. If we're going to rightly administer the or, this ordinance in the life of the church, then at the very least, we must know who it is to be administered to, how it is to be administered, and when it should take place. Let's begin first with the who. Who should participate in the Lord's table? Based on our definition of the Lord's table, I'd say that a person ought to meet three conditions in order to participate in it. The first condition is belief. Only believers should participate in the Lord's table. This should almost go without saying, if the Lord's table depicts a person's participation in the new covenant, then only those who participate in the new covenant should receive it. And since a person received the promises of that covenant by faith, when they believe in Christ, then the Lord's table should only be received by those who believe. Now, I say that this should go without saying, but this isn't how people have always approached the Lord's table. Just as there are some who would say that baptism should be administered in anticipation of belief, there are also some who have argued the same regarding the Lord's table. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, probably arguably the greatest theologian in American history, his grandfather, Solomon Sodder, practiced communion in this way in his congregation in Northampton. 
And when Edwards later became pastor of that congregation and eventually refused to administer communion in anticipation of faith, Jonathan Edwards, arguably the greatest theologian in American history, was fired. However, this is not the way that covenant signs work. You go back into the Old Testament, and they were never delivered in anticipation of a person's participation in a covenant. They were always made with the active participants of the covenant. Even circumcision, which was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and which was performed on all male children in Israel when they were only eight days old, even that sign was given to indicate that those children were active participants in the Abrahamic covenant by virtue of God's unconditional promise to Abraham and his descendants. This was even demonstrated by the fact that Genesis 17.14 says that every male who is not circumcised is cut off from the people because he has broken the covenant. That's important. The male is a member of the covenant before circumcision, circumcision being a requirement to remain in the covenant. When the male is not circumcised, he's then removed from the covenant promises because he's broken the covenant by not being circumcised. So I think you can see, even with circumcision, the the covenant sign is practiced by those who are members of the covenant. This is why baptism follows faith, and it's why the Lord's table is received only by those who believe. Because a person becomes a participant in the new covenant by faith, and solely by faith, according to Galatians 3. If that's the case, then the symbols of that covenant should be received only by those who have believed. Once again, this is the first condition to participation in the Lord's table. It should be received only by those who believe. Second, it should be received only by believers who are in healthy relationships with other members of the church. It should be received only by members who are, or, or believers rather, who are in healthy relationships with other members of the church, other believers. In other words, while one can participate in the covenant after they believe, That doesn't necessarily mean they always should. We see clear indication in the New Testament, for instance, that if a person is at odds with the members of the body of Christ, then although they are participants in the new covenant by faith, they still should not partake in the symbol that points to their participation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, 18-22, the Apostle Paul indicates that to take the Lord's table while there are divisions in the church is to so distort the meaning of the table itself as to make it something else entirely. He tells the Corinthians that there are divisions among them and that that this is indicated in their observance of the Lord's table by the fact that when they come together, one goes ahead with his own meal, the other goes hungry, and another gets drunk. With this, Paul apparently indicates that the Corinthians were taking the Lord's table in the context of an actual meal. It wasn't just a little ritual that was tacked on to the end of a worship service like what we tend to practice today. Rather, it was practiced in the context of an actual meal. Just like Jesus first instituted the table during the course of the Passover meal, that's what the Corinthians were doing as well. It would seem that relatively early in the church, believers began to associate the Lord's table with the communal meals that were practiced in places like Acts 2, 42-47, during which the church would share in common what they had for the benefit of all. The problem that the Corinthian church had was that as they came together to celebrate the Lord's table in the context of this communal meal, rather than see to the needs of one another, they looked out instead for their own selfish interests. Perhaps by this, Paul meant that they brought food only for themselves, or perhaps he means that they greedily plunged into the common food without consideration for others at the meal. 
Either way, as they came together to celebrate the Lord's table with this meal, they came looking out only for their own interests rather than for the interests of others in the body. Paul not only says that this, con- this completely strips the Lord's table of, his, of its meaning, but he even goes so far as to say that because the Corinthians are taking the Lord's table in this way, some of them are sick and some have even died. Clearly, once again, the practice of the Lord's table matters. It may not be salvific, but it clearly matters. Now, the reason why the Corinthians' approach to the table is such an offense goes back to this idea that we covered last week, that the Lord's table is an expression of both fellowship with Christ and with everyone else who awaits His second coming as well. Once again, Paul states just a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? He says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. When we participate in the meal, we share a very real union with Christ. And since we all participate in the same Christ as indicated by our joint reception of the same elements. By virtue of that union with Christ, we are united to one another as well. What this means is that to come to the Lord's table while at enmity with other members of the body, or to come together in a manner that you see here in 1 Corinthians 11, is to come in such a way as to express our own individuality or selfish desires rather than our corporate union in Christ, To come to the table in this way is to take the Lord's table in an unworthy way. So not only should we consider the corporate aspect of how this ordinance is observed, but we need to consider it in the who as well. No one who has an offense against a brother or sister that they have not forgiven, or perhaps that they have not been forgiven of, they should not participate in this meal. To do so would nullify the meaning of the table. That's the second condition to participation in the Lord's table. Third, It should be received by believers who are in a healthy relationship with the Lord. So, again, it should be received by believers. It should be received by believers who are in healthy relationships with other members of the church. And then it should be received by believers in a healthy relationship with the Lord Himself. The logic here is already apparent in the second condition, so I'll make this point brief. Once again, this this ordinance points to a believer's union with other believers and to their union with Christ. So just as it would be wrong to take the Lord's table while at odds with other believers, so also it would be wrong to take it while at odds with Christ Himself. This means that if a believer is not living a life of faith in Christ due to some known sin that they refuse to repent of, they shouldn't participate in the ordinance until they repent. They may enjoy ultimate saving fellowship with Christ, but they are not living that way. And so to take the meal while in that state would strip it of its meaning. Just as the Corinthians took the table in an unworthy manner when they, when they took it consumed with selfishness and greed, so also the Christian receives it in an unworthy manner when they take it while harboring sin in their life. Now to be clear, this is not to say, I want to be very clear on this, this is not to say that you only come to the Lord's table when sin has been eliminated from your life. If that were the case, then none of us would ever be able to celebrate the ordinance, right? The problem isn't the mere existence of sin. 
Again, one of the roles of this table is to actually point to our forgiveness as we struggle with sin. It's meant to encourage us by reassuring us of our salvation. The problem is unrepentant sin. It is hypocritical of a believer to come to the table and express their union and fellowship with Christ while willingly, knowingly harboring sin in their heart. The fellowship they're expressing isn't entirely true. They may have a relationship with Christ, but they're not living in light of that relationship in that moment. So they should not participate in the meal, not until that sin is dealt with and put away. I'd like to move on now to the when of the Lord's table. But before we do that, I just want to emphasize with these last two conditions, the purpose of these conditions is not to discourage participation in the Lord's table. It's to discourage sin and encourage repentance. In other words, if a believer is failing in either of these last two conditions, the response should not be, well, I guess I'm not worthy to take the table. Instead, the response should be, I need to seek forgiveness or I need to repent. This is one of the awesome, awesome ways that the Lord's table ministers to the church. It constantly calls the church to repentance by reminding us of the significance of our salvation and how it ought to affect our conduct in this life. I want you to keep this in mind as we discuss our next point. The Lord's table constantly calls us to repentance by reminding us of how out of character it is for the church to harbor division or sin. So there's the who. And there's more that we could say here than we have time for. We could talk, for instance, about the role of baptism in church membership, the role that those play in the observance of the meal. Uh, But for time's sake, we're going to have to cut it off here. There's a basic understanding of the who of the Lord's table. Let's now explore the when. When should the Lord's table be observed? Quite simply, the New Testament doesn't give us any specific guidelines as to when to observe this ordinance. In 1 Corinthians 11, with reference to the Lord's table, Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Uh, That may indicate that the church was participating in the table whenever they came together. Though I think it's more likely Paul's referring to when they come together specifically to eat the Lord's table without any reference to frequency. In Acts 20, verse 7, there's a reference to breaking bread together on the first day of the week. And there's some debate about whether or not that's a reference specifically to the taking of the Lord's table together. Uh, there's a case to be made for that. And if so, it would indicate that the church regularly observed the Lord's table during their Sunday worship. But even if we could definitively conclude in either case what the practice of the early church was with reference to the Lord's table, even then we would only have a description of the frequency of the table in the church, not prescription. So it's hard to say when it should should be observed in terms of frequency. Probably the only thing we can, we can say definitively about when the table is to be observed is that it's probably safe to say that it should be taken as much as possible only within the corporate assembly of the church. Again, I say as much as possible just because there are going to be instances with, with homebound believers in the life when that type of thing is going to be impossible. And in those instances, I don't think it would be wrong to administer the ordinance in a somewhat private setting any more than it would be wrong to baptize a new believer on their deathbed with a pitcher of water. Okay. Yes, there are best ways to observe the symbols. Immersion, for instance, in baptism is the best way to observe that symbol. And the corporate assembly of the Lord's table is the best way to observe that symbol as well. But in the end, they are just symbols of deeper spiritual truth, so you work with what you got. However, that being said, apart from these types of extenuating circumstances, it would not be fitting for a Christian to take the meal privately 
you know, say during a lunch break at work or something like that. And there are at least a couple of reasons for that. First, not only would such a practice not communicate the true meaning of the meal, which includes this corporate fellowship that we enjoy in Christ. But second, the Lord's table plays an incredibly vital role in the process of church discipline. I mean, you stop and think about it, and what this meal symbolizes is both fellowship with Christ and with His church. Part of the significance of church discipline is that it cuts a person off from participation in this ordinance. And what that communicates is, although, you know, what the church is saying when that happens is they're saying to the person under discipline, although you've been baptized, we no longer have reason to accept your testimony. So far as we're concerned, as long as you remain in your sin, you are not a participant in the new covenant. So repent. If you allow for a private observance of the Lord's table, you take that tool away, which is designed by Christ to serve as a warning to unrepentant Christians about their spiritual condition. So I think we have to conclude that this meal should only be celebrated in a corporate setting. But outside of that, there aren't a lot of details that we can draw from the New Testament about how often we should observe this meal. However, I will say this. I'd like to say this. I can't understand, even though the New Testament doesn't tell us how often we should observe this meal, I can't understand why a church wouldn't observe this table as frequently as they can. After all, it is a visible expression of the invisible realities that occur whenever the church assembles together. And not only that, but it continually reminds us both of what Jesus has done for us as well as what we have to look forward to. It's a reminder as well of the love that we are to have for one another based on the union that we enjoy with Christ. Again, it continually calls us to repentance. It continually reminds us of Christ's presence with us. It's a witness to God's grace. It's a witness to our hope. There's just so many important spiritual realities wrapped up in this simple but profound observance that I've often wondered, not just of this church, but of many churches, why wouldn't we as Christians take part in this meal every chance we can if we're so permitted? What benefit is there? Think about this. What benefit is there to observing such a sweet and beneficial reminder of so many important spiritual truths What benefit is there in observing that less often? I just can't think of a good answer to that question. I know there are many answers out there, but I'm just not convinced. So I'd like to hear what you think. You know, over the past couple of months, we've been discussing the concept of corporate worship in our Sunday school class. And we've done this not only so that we can all better prepare ourselves as individuals as we approach corporate worship, but also so that we can corporately as a church evaluate the elements involved in our weekly expression of worship and decide whether or not we want to make any changes to it. What I'd like to discuss tonight, you can see in our bulletin, we're going to talk about how to um, incorporate the Lord's table into the life of the church. One of the things I'd like to discuss tonight is, is this something we'd like to change about our corporate worship? Would we want to observe the Lord's table on a more frequent basis, perhaps on a weekly basis? Clint and I would both like to hear what you think about that. And this is true not just concerning the when of the Lord's table, but the how as well. Uh, Perhaps there are some changes we could make in how we celebrate the Lord's table. In order to answer that question, let's go ahead and look at what the Scripture says about this, the how of the Lord's table. What does the New Testament say about how we should celebrate this ordinance? Well, just like the when, the New Testament doesn't give many prescriptions about how the table is to be celebrated. 
beyond the heart issues that we discussed earlier. This seems to be the emphasis in the New Testament, not only in regard to the ordinances, but in regards to all of God's commands. What what matters, first and foremost, is the condition of the heart. The worshiper must come in sincerity and in truth. Of course, this isn't to say that there is not a right way to do things. It's just that the basic assumption made in the New Testament is that if the heart is aligned with God and His purposes, then the actions are going to follow. So, intent precedes method in priority. So yes, for instance, the proper mode of baptism is immersion. But far more important are the invisible realities communicated in the symbol. Does the symbol accurately reflect the spiritual status of the participants involved? And the same is true with the Lord's table. Still, we can make a few observations that might inform us as to a wise or fitting administration of the ordinance, what that might look like. For example, if we were to look at the order of the Lord's table, we might see that when Jesus first instituted it, He gave thanks to God in prayer before breaking the bread and then giving it to the disciples. He then broke the bread in their presence and gave it to them to distribute among themselves. And, of course, finally, they closed the meal by singing a hymn together. Again, none of that is prescribed, so we can't say that this order must accompany the Lord's table. But the fact that these are the steps that Jesus took when He distributed the meal to His disciples, at the very least, indicates that there's certainly nothing improper about that order. And it may even indicate that this order is preferable. Additionally, while it would appear that the early church often celebrated this ordinance in the context of an actual meal, we don't have anything to indicate that this must be the case in terms of how we observe the Lord's table. The elements themselves certainly are not equivalent to a meal. All we have is a church's example of celebrating it with a meal. There's no command to do it this way, so it would seem okay to observe it detached from an actual fellowship meal. In fact, I think if we understand that the table was often observed in the context of a love feast, which seems to have been one way that the early church cared for the poor in the congregation, then the principle we might extract from this might be less the association of an actual meal with the Lord's table and more the giving of alms. After all, yes, the Lord's table pictures our fellowship with one another, and no no doubt that's represented when we eat a meal together. However, the union that we enjoy and the care for one another that we experience as a result of that union is also reflected when we show a tangible expression of our care for one another. And while a meal can serve as an additional symbol of our love, the giving of alms serves as a very real demonstration of it. So again, I don't think the New Testament tells us that we should celebrate the Lord's table in the context of an actual meal. It certainly seems like we could do that if we wanted to, but it's not prescribed. Regardless of how we take it, no doubt the emphasis is that it must be received in love for one another. Again, the emphasis is on the intent of the worshiper more than the form. Not to say that form doesn't matter, but intent does precede form and priority. That's what we need to spend most of our time thinking about as we think about how to take the meal. Regarding the elements themselves, again, not a whole lot is said in the New Testament about how the elements should be used. Uh, We use a common loaf of bread in our celebration of the table rather than communion wafers because 1 Corinthians 10.17 indicates that we are one body for we all partake of one bread. Again, we share in the same sacrifice and I think that's best symbolized by a common loaf rather than individual communion wafers. 
And I have to say, I'm just glad that Paul doesn't say anything about all drinking from the same cup because that would be gross. I don't think I could go there on that point. Should the bread be leavened or unleavened? This is a question that people sometimes ask. Jesus and the disciples ate unleavened bread during the Passover meal, so unleavened bread is perhaps the most fitting way to celebrate the meal. However, when you get into the meaning of the unleavened bread during the Passover meal, it had to do with the quickness of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And since Jesus doesn't point to anything regarding the quickness of our deliverance and the institution of the Lord's table, there doesn't seem to be any sort of connection there. Perhaps it's better to use unleavened bread simply for the sake of precedence, but it's certainly not required, I don't think. What about the cup? Should it be real wine or is grape juice okay? Again, this is something that people wonder from time to time. Just so you know, yes, I think Jesus used real alcoholic wine during the Passover. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that categorically condemns alcohol as necessarily evil. Yes, drunkenness is a sin, no doubt about that. But outside of that, I think you can actually point to passages that speak to alcohol as a kind of blessing, believe it or not. Psalm 104, uh, verses 14 to 15, says that God causes the plants to grow which man uses to produce, quote, food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. I don't think that's a reference to grape juice, the wine that gladdens the heart of man. Common sense says that's a reference to alcohol. So I think the total aversion to alcohol that happens in the churches probably reflects a a cultural attitude more than it does a biblical one, and therefore I certainly don't think there's anything wrong with the use of wine in the Lord's table. That being said, culturally, there is a common perception that alcohol is inherently sinful, even among unbelievers. And so I don't know that it's particularly wise to use wine in the Lord's table if it's not explicitly prescribed. And I think that's iffy, whether or not it's explicitly prescribed. I will say that too. A couple of weeks ago, we heard R.C. Sproul make an argument for the use of wine in the Lord's table uh, during our Sunday school when he discussed the taste of worship. If you were here for his class and you heard his arguments for the use of wine, I don't know that I would agree with most of them. Uh, I think they were probably more conjecture uh, than they are points drawn explicitly from the text. I think when you look simply at the text itself, we can most definitely see that the appearance of the cup matters. Regarding the cup, Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant. So the cup symbolizes the blood of Christ. That certainly seems to be pointing to the color of the wine. Wine can loosely resemble the appearance of blood, so it stands in as a symbol pointing to the blood of Christ. This would mean that you probably wouldn't use, say, a white wine in celebration of the Lord's table, even though it is wine. And and grape juice may be able to serve as as an acceptable substitute since it can offer a similar appearance to wine. Where I think an argument could be made for the necessary use of real wine in the table is when we get to the eschatological components of this meal. Again, Jesus tells his disciples At the beginning of the meal, regarding the Passover, I tell you I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Likewise, here in Matthew 26, 29, Jesus says, I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, Jesus is is drinking this wine in anticipation of a celebration that's going to be had in the kingdom once it's been established. This is actually how the future kingdom is depicted very often in the Old Testament as a time of celebration when both grain and wine will be consumed in abundance. It would seem that this is part of what the Lord's table depicts as well. It's a a foretaste of the great celebration that we're going to enjoy 
with Jesus when the earth is restored and, and the grain and wine of the earth abound. And if this is so, and I think it probably is, then one can make an argument that real actual wine is the proper element to use in the Lord's table, not grape juice. Again, it is wine that gladdens the heart of man. That's what is used in celebration, not grape juice. And so one could argue that since the table anticipates this future celebration, it is more proper to use wine in the ordinance rather than some other substitute. Personally, I think there's a, there's a strong argument that could be made there, but I think when you consider that we have direct commands in Scripture not to cause a weaker brother to stumble, and no evidently clear command that says we must use wine to properly observe the Lord's table, then I think it's safe to show deference to the weaker brother by using grape juice. Like, I don't think Jesus would hold it against the church that they use an inferior symbol for the sake of a brother or sister's edification, right? I think he would probably praise that. After all, that's the whole point of the meal, isn't it? To edify the church. So if real wine isn't going to do that, it's probably best to opt out for a substitute. There's more we could discuss about the how of worship. We could talk, for instance, of, of who should oversee this, this ordinance, for instance. Uh, one question that comes up is, you know, should only elders uh, lead in the celebration of the ordinance, or is it okay for lay leaders to take on that role as well? Uh, further, is there a particular way that the elements should be distributed? We could discuss all of that if we had time, uh, but unfortunately we do not. We're out of time. So, again, uh, just like I said last week, I know this feels a lot like a classroom, and it kind of is, Uh, for this week, but we'll wrap up there um, in our discussion of the Lord's table. So I'll just close by asking you this. Kind of based off of this discussion, how do you think we can improve in our celebration of the table? That's what I'd like to talk with you about tonight at 6. We know now what the table means. We know that it's important. And we have a foundation now for what the New Testament says about the way it should be observed. And so how can we improve our observance of this ordinance. I'd like to get your thoughts on that as we uh, continue to reflect how we are, can improve our worship here at Cornerstone. Uh, and of course, by the way, I'll, just, I'll take this as an opportunity to kind of make a plug and point out that next Sunday morning for Sunday school is going to be our last Sunday morning in our discussion of worship. And that's going to be all discussion where, again, we're talking about how we can improve the corporate worship here at Cornerstone. So, um, Obviously, if you've been a part of that class, I encourage you to come back and be a part of that. You know, again, beyond the Lord's table, what are some ways we can improve our worship? Um, Join us for that next week at, at 930. Let's pray.